0: And
1: speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place.
0: Ooh, weren't expecting that, were you? Well, the drama of it all. That is the overture, of course, from Wicked. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. Wicked is arguably the most successful musical in the last 15 years. Over 30 million people have seen it worldwide, and it continues on Broadway for the 14th straight year. Got a great guest today, Winnie Holzman, who wrote the libretto for Wicked. Now, we're going to talk about the making of the show, the problems, the solutions, and why it is such a worldwide phenomenon. A lot of good stuff. Let's get to it. Hollywood and the Vine. Most musicals are an arduous journey from start to finish. Talk a little bit about the beginning of Wicked. It began with a book.
1: It began with a novel, right, called Wicked by the writer Gregory Maguire.
0: And Notice it, how writers always give credit to other writers. Have to. Uh-huh.
1: Have to. It's just too annoying how many times people <laughs> go, and then there was the writer.
0: Right. And it's like,
1: but did that person have a name? <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't their mother like to hear it out loud? So it really began with Stephen Schwartz before I was brought into it. Um, reading this novel by Gregory Maguire and having a vision, there's no other way to put it, a, a startling vision. This is while he was on a vacation in the Caribbean, that he had to make a musical out of this novel. And what happened is he he contacted his lawyer right away, so he got back to the mainland and found out soon enough that the novel had been optioned by Universal At the time, Mark Platt, the the wonderful producer, Mark Platt, who ended up uh, co-producing it with David Stone, our other wonderful producer, Stephen ended up contacting Mark Platt and basically making a passionate case and saying, please don't make this into... They were planning to make it into a movie that wasn't a musical. Mm. If we can remember back about 15 years ago... Making movie musicals wasn't the big thing.
0: That's true, yeah.
1: And um, they had not even crossed their mind to make it a musical. It was going to be a movie. And they had, I think, sort of stalled on it. I know it's hard to believe. Oh, a movie stalled? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't really happening. So Stephen made this impassioned case, as only he can, because he really saw it as a Broadway show. And he said, don't make a movie. Let me turn this into a Broadway show, and then then you then you can make a movie, if you want. And basically, it took a while. I mean, I I can remember when Stephen brought me in. I remember which was when?
0: What year was this?
1: Oh, I hate to sound like a little granny on the porch. (laughs) When was that? I believe it was probably ninety. Seven or ninety-eight.
0: Okay, it opened in two thousand and three, um, so it gives you an idea of how long yeah. it takes. And
1: we and Stephen, who's done many more musicals than me or than anyone, mm-hmm. um, was saying to me, "Oh, this is going like the wind."
0: <laughs> <laughs> Five years is the wind.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, sort of. Yeah, uh-huh. I think so. The little weird psychic energy element—I guess you can all tell I live in LA—but the weird psychic aspect was that. Around that time that Stephen was discovering that book, Wicked, I saw it on the shelf of a bookstore in New York City and was gripped by the by the image on the cover, which was this green girl who was green with a black hat, sort of shading her face. And I turned it over and read, and I could instantly tell by the little blurb on the back that it was a story that took the Wicked Witch of the West and made her into the heroine of the story. And my mind exploded and I bought the book and I too had the thought, I wish I could get the rights to this book. Hmm. This is odd, but I was not like Stephen Schwartz. I'm not quite that smart and insightful. And I never realized it should be a musical. I just thought, I wish I could get the rights to this. This is brilliant idea, which it certainly is. It's a galvanizing idea. And, um, I found out that Universal had the rights, that they had begun a screenplay. And so I was so disappointed that I literally left it on my shelf in my workspace and never read it because Mm. I couldn't bear to read it because I was disappointed that I wasn't going to, quote unquote, get to work on it. So it was kind of blew my mind when finally Stephen came to me and he came to me because we'd been set up on sort of a blind date. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we, we had met years ago when I was studying musical theater writing at NYU, because I, I was in a graduate program there. And he's just a few years older than me, but you know he became famous very young with Godspell and then Pippin, and both of which he began writing when he was in college at Carnegie Mellon. So though not that much older than me, and I have a math block, so I always forget how much older than me he is, but he was already like very, you know, esteemed when I was a student. Mm -hmm. And so he came to speak to us one day and claims he remembers me from that day. I don't know why he would, because I don't think I distinguish myself. But anyway, he had followed my career a bit. And um, he thought of me for this. I think he had the instinct from the beginning that he wanted to work with a woman on it. And I think he just, he, he had some instinct, some good insight about me. He, people think we were friends before uh, because we're very close friends now, but we really didn't know each other. But the blind date was that there was an executive uh, who's no longer, uh, he's fine, but he's no longer working at Disney. But he was working at Disney then, and he brought us both to a lunch hoping that we would maybe write an animated musical together. Mm. And over that lunch, we both started to talk about this Book, Wicked. Uh, to me, I still hadn't read it out of peak, but I really, really thought the idea was genius. And we started to talk about it, leaving out the executive and not really talking about something we could really do. <laughs> and then at the end of the conversation, Stephen said to me, Well, we have to put it out of our mind. I hate to depress you, but it's not available at all. I've begged and begged. And we were sort of like, Well, it was nice talking to you. And he called me, I guess, about three or four or maybe six months later. I was sitting right here because I me- I was standing and I remember when he told me while he was calling I had to sit down because <laughs> because wow. I got a little weak in the knees and he said well he said he might have even said you should sit down <laughs> mm-hmm. he said I've convinced Universal to let me do a musical of Wicked and I want to do it with you and I think you should read it now because I had confided to him that I'd never read it so that's how it all began
0: it's a big book, it's, and, it's right and, over there. and there's a, a lot of subplots and things have you, you
1: have you read it
0: uh, I a long time ago yeah it's,
1: yeah it's from the time we began working together on it, which which when I say began, it began with a lot of discussion he He actually lives in Connecticut, and I live here here in l a so the beginning of our collaboration was mostly phone calls long phone calls, and then whenever he was out here or whenever I would come east, we would always get together. But we would have these long talks, and I think it was just a very natural, organic thing of, like, we felt that the idea was the musical, this idea, A, that the Wicked Witch of the West was going to be the heroine of the story, Mm -hmm. and that the idea that you, the public, you, the audience, don't know the true story of what happened in Oz, and you don't know her in fact, you don't even know her name. She's just known as the Wicked Witch of the West. You don't even know her name. That, that idea that Gregory came up with, that she had a childhood, that she was a heroine. This is an amazing, like I said, kind of thrilling idea. We didn't want to worry about the details of the plot that Gregory had crafted because we didn't ever think that that detailed plot that he had crafted was going to fit on a stage,
0: Right, and it was very detailed.
1: Very detailed, yeah. and very if I may say, what's that word for meandering that sounds better, where it's <laughs> like you know it's like the kind of story where this happens and then that happens, and then this happens and then that happens, and it's not as much of a domino as you would want for a right. play or a musical. it's more discursive. You know, so there were certain things that just literally we were going to, you know, he's an incredible writer, obviously Gregory Maguire, and a great person. And from the time that we started to really, really get serious about making it, we, I say we, but it was Stephen, Stephen went to see him and said, if we do this, we we need your blessing to do with it what we wish Mm -hmm. and we want to please you I mean we want you to like it but it's going to be its own thing and thank God he was okay with that and that's the basis on which we did the, the musical because we always knew it wasn't going to be something where you could just take the novel and and stick it on the stage but we always did also say to each other we wanted the musical to be somewhat novelistic, and that might sound highfalutin, but just in the sense of we wanted it to feel at the end that you'd been on a real journey with these two young women, that you'd known them from the time they were young to when they got a little more mature and seasoned, and that you'd really seen them go through in a novelly way. You'd seen It's a real two. saga,
0: real journey. Yeah, yeah, you'd seen
1: a saga exactly, yeah. and also in you know Gregory had this brilliant idea that he did in the novel where he put the Wicked Witch of the West and Glinda the Good Witch together as roommates in college. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, and Stephen has said this a million times publicly, and I guess I probably have too, but so excuse me if anyone's bored. But um, <laughs> there are so many times when, we've, when, when we were working on it, when we were writing it, and people would go, like, what are you working on? If you just said to people, say, at a cocktail party, we're working on this musical, it's about the Wicked Witch of the West. There are things about her you don't, turns out you don't know. Like, for instance, she and Glinda the Good Witch were roommates in college. People would light up. They would light up. They would go like, oh, my gosh. And so we knew, like, that was such a brilliant stroke on Gregory's part. We were never going to part with that. Right. But the way we executed that, and as you know, because you do this, what we do, where well, we all do the same thing. Execution <laughs> is everything. The way we executed it was different than how Gregory executed it because it was, it was not a novel. It was going to be put on stage.
0: One of my favorite characters was the professor that was an animal. The goat? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dr. (laughs) Dillamond. Uh And that is in Gregory's book. Mm -hmm. But, of course, we shifted that as well. I mean, the way he's presented in the book is different.
0: Great metaphor.
1: Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. The scapegoat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, there's so much in Gregory's book that infused into our... In other words, in a literal sense, we didn't take his plot. But, for instance, his work... You know, the Wicked Novel is very political. Mm -hmm. And we wanted our show to make, in a sense, a political... uh, To say a statement sounds so, in a way, deadening. (laughs) But we wanted it to have a political content. But Stephen Schwartz and I are just two very specific personalities. And we have very specific things we like and don't like. And our show, just by necessity, because of who we are, was going to be sort of lighter and frothier. Mm -hmm. than his novel which is actually quite dark it is and there's all these i think you know excuse me parents but eight to ten year old girls who go to our show who then buy the novel and the novel is not for (laughs) an eight or ten year old girl it's barely for a 13 year old girl and it's it's incredibly dark and um you know we knew our show was not going to be that and that just has to do with who we are.
0: Okay, so the uh, chicken and the egg question about every musical, did you write the book first? Did you write the music first? Did you do it together?
1: Like the, uh, kind of intertwined. Y- uh-huh. The way we worked, if I, you know, it's interesting, it just evolved naturally. But it would always start with a lot of conversation Mm -hmm. you know, the basics thing that you're always asking each other as a part, you know, your collaborator, which is what is this about again? Mm -hmm. And what is our story again? And Mm -hmm. who are these people again? (laughs) I completely forget because I'm a writer and I have amnesia. (laughs) And then you have to keep telling yourself the story. And how are you going to obviously tell it the most elegantly? And um, I think the way it really, really started was Stephen had been thinking about doing this for at least a year or two before he got the permission from Mark Platt and, and from Gregory and from mm-hmm. Universal. So he formed some strong ideas in his head, and one of them had to do with how the show would begin, what the end of the first act would be, and how it would end. So those are temples. poles. So we never really varied from those images that he had Mm -hmm. But we used them almost, they felt, well, I shouldn't say that because uh, the beginning of our show changed many, many times. Like It took us a long time to understand that the show would begin the way it begins because I had all kinds of other stuff uh, that I had to just get out of my system.
0: What do you mean? Because musicals, how they begin... Is just it's just so, so key. key. Yes. And oftentimes you see this where beginnings change. Yes, we uh, changed it many, what, many times. What was lacking and what was the final key that actually made the beginning work?
1: This is the very beginning. I was playing with the idea of a press conference mm-hmm. where Dorothy and the Tin Woodsman and the Cowardly Lion and the Scarecrow were all being interviewed in a press conference. Now I can't remember why that seemed like such a great idea, but uh, honestly it did at the time. You know, back then, this is so long ago, you know what was going on in the news? It was all about Monica Lewinsky. Uh And I
0: miss those days.
1: (laughs) Yes, a return to innocence. Why can't it be those simpler times when all we were worried about was a fucking blowjob? (laughs) Um, It was really the start of that kind of 24-hour news you know, cycle, cycle route, that huh? was sort of gripping you with an iron grip. And I think that's part of the reason I came up with that. And then I shifted from that to Madame Morrible. People will remember who know the show that she ends up being the, the wizard's press secretary. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. If you haven't seen Wicked, which has been, which is now in its happiest 13th year. <laughs> uh, don't listen to, yeah. <laughs> to some of this, yeah. but she, as the, wizard's press secretary was going to sort of begin almost making a press statement about the death of the witch and then these things happen as you know in such an organic way sometimes it had to do with kristen chenoweth it had to do with the fact that we really wanted kristen to play Glinda, and kristen was and is a star and even back then pre-wicked she was still quite a star She'd won a Tony, and she was magical.
0: She had her own sitcom, which I directed.
1: (laughs) That's right. Oh, my God, Small World. Well, we wanted her. And as you know, when you really want someone, and this is a person who gets offers and can pick and choose a bit, you have to make the part something they'd like to do. And it isn't called good. She was going to be playing the other witch, the good witch, not the wicked one who's in the title. So that was uppermost in my mind. That was part, I wouldn't say uppermost, that was part of the ingredients in my mind. So I was looking for things to give to her, but also she's a genius. And suddenly it was like, I can't remember the date that it happened, but I started to realize, oh wait, Glinda starts the show. I mean, we have the monkeys, which might have been invented by Joe Mantello. Monkeys, you know, raise the curtain Mm -hmm. and are, you know, leaping around in excitement. And then... the music starts and there's this burst of energy. It's a celebration throughout Oz and the the, uh, the ensemble is singing. But what really starts the show is Glinda appears in a bubble and waves to everybody and addresses, you know, Oz and us. So in other words, if you think about it, it's not so different. I knew I wanted somebody to address the audience and inform them of what had just happened. See what I mean? Mm -hmm. But who was going to do that and who was the right person to do that? the right character. Well, once we realized it was Glinda, of course it made so much sense because then it's Glinda remembering how it all started Mm -hmm. and Glinda taking us through the story. And it was always going to be the whole, one of the big themes of Wicked is that you think you know a story, but there's so much more to the story. You know, because the whole idea is we're taking this fabled Famous story, The Wizard of Oz. We're turning it in in another direction, and we're going look at it this way. And so, it was right that she be telling us a story that then is going to, you might even say, expand into into a story where we're surprised or that holds surprises that we don't know is coming, kind of thing. You know, because when she first starts, she's speaking in this very factual way, like a news conference. She gives like a death report the way Christiane Amampour would. Right. Like, this is what happened, and this was the date. She says, you know, a bucket of water thrown by a female child. It's all very factual.
0: It sort of gives it a reality, too.
1: Correct. I mean, one of my biggest things, and Stephen, too, one of the things Gregory accomplished brilliantly that we really wanted to emulate in our own way was in, in writing the novel... He really made you feel that Oz was a real place. It was he really does a magic trick almost that way. He makes it so real. It's not a little fairy tale joke. It it's real. It's really happening. And we wanted it the same way. Like we wanted to have fun with it cuz it's a musical. But we wanted Oz to feel real and these events to feel real. And the other element is that it's it's funny. The Wizard of Oz movie, I mean I think we're about the same age. Was an oh, was a 40
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I yeah exactly. I wear it well. <laughs> the Wizard of Oz movie was an event in my childhood that that happened every year.
0: Yeah, mine too. On TV, it exactly. was like a big deal. And
1: Stevens too. Stevens just a few years older than me, as I constantly say. Forty three. Exactly. And we both felt this great sense of reverence and adoration for that movie and so one of the biggest things in our mind was became very clear to both of us that the movie had to be respected the way you would respect a great work of art we couldn't make fun of the movie in a way that was disrespectful or contradict the movie like oh it's just a silly movie that wasn't ever, ever, how we approached the movie. But what we felt was that the movie showed a piece of reality, and there was much more that was happening off camera that you hadn't seen. And that was our guiding. You could say that was our, is lodestar the right word? Or that was our north star.
0: I'm still looking for another (laughs) word for meandering.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'll think of it. Yeah. (laughs) Pick Picaresque.
0: Picaresque. There you go. You know what I mean? Yeah. Picaresque mm-hmm. novel
1: where people were like, let's say a young man or like sort of wanders around and he has this adventure and then he has that adventure. And it's not quite that, but almost.
0: Did you and Steven have fights along the way?
1: Well, that's funny. I think we had, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure I would call them fights. The fights we had were with Joe Mantello.
0: The director. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: And... You know, I can say that with a lot of love and admiration because I absolutely love and admire him, and we were so lucky to have him. He was such a brilliant collaborator to have. He's such an amazing man. But Stephen and I sometimes would fight with him, I think, because we had a tendency to see things the same way. And Joe, which is very, you know, it made the show better, let's face it. He had other things he saw... And sometimes that was, we would really just jump up and down and go, oh, of course. And other times we would sort of dig in our heels. But I think at the end, what happened, like I'm saying, is that the fights actually made the show just 10 times better. One great thing about Joe and about, I think, Stephen and I, if I can say that, is we all really wanted just the best show. You know, we really wanted to put the show first the way you would put the child first. Mm-hmm. And it was like... Whatever would make the show best, we finally did want. And one of the things that makes the show best, as everyone knows who's collaborated, is you have to give and take. You can't win every battle. You just can't. Stephen and I, it's not so much that we fought. I think we really almost didn't. He's really, he's like an older brother for me. Uh, Well, I fought a lot more with my older brother than I fought with (laughs) Stephen.
0: So you finally get it up. You're doing previews in San Francisco.
1: That was the only time we really fought with Joe because of the tension of, of being out of town.
0: All of those years and all of the changes and revisions, by the time it finally got up, did you feel that you were like so close to it that it was really hard to tell?
1: Well, that's a great question. And I have to say one that I've never been asked because it's so that that is one of the cruxy moments where it's like, this is what separates, I'm not going to say men from the boys because I'm a girl, but woman, but that is where, you know, the rubber meets the road and to, or just to say a spout in a series of cliches. It's like, if you can't do that, yes, you got close, but you can't actually do it. And that's where I think I was super lucky to have the men that I was working with, with not, not just them, but Mark Platt and David Stone, who are both incredible producers and very smart, literate men who understand theater very well, very well. So I was surrounded by people who were really, really good at this. Stephen's forgotten more about musicals than most people will ever learn. He just is a fount of deep intrinsic understanding. But you're right, you lose your way, it, it's overwhelming. And especially, we were rewriting pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, people may not believe or realize that, but there were places in the show, and they were all in the beginning. We had the opposite of what most people have. If you have book trouble, you got second act problems where the first part of the show is great, it delivers, and then somehow you lose your way and the second act never comes together. We had the opposite. We had an incredible, if I may say that about something I wrote or co-wrote, we had a second act that was like a fucking freight train (laughs) that just went and it it was lean and mean and it had a great ending. And we had a great ending to the first act but the beginning of the first act was stumbly and not graceful and not efficient and not elegant. And, of course, you're sitting there in the theater and you're watching people and they're starting to look bored because it's like, where is this going? They're, it's meandering. I'll use that word again. And I only have so many words. I can.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I just use them again and again and I just drive them into the ground. So it was so, I mean, I'm getting nervous even talking about it again. First of all, you have to stay open-minded. You can't close your mind and go, it's this way, and it was ever thus, and it was written in the Bible this way, and it has to be this way. You just can't. You have to open your mind and listen to what your collaborators are suggesting and ask yourself, you know, just sit in that theater and ask yourself, what do I want to happen now? And sometimes, as you know, it's these very subtle things where... You know, one line from one character sets that character early and then you use what you've already got and it just people see it in a new light. Right. Because you've set them up properly and everything is set up. Let's face it. Everything is set up and pay off, set up and mm-hmm. pay off. But you want to be doing it in an elegant, you know, hopefully not cloddy, not obvious way.
0: Well, you guys did a very smart thing. After the run was over in San Francisco, you allotted yourself like three months so that you really had the opportunity to step back and do the work.
1: That's Stephen Schwartz's wisdom. That was in his deal. Mm. He would not proceed with Out of Town unless we had that written in. It was very costly for the producers. I mean, in retrospect...
0: Made the show. Made the show.
1: Made the show, literally. Because what happened was, you're asking such smart questions, because what happened was, yes, we made some cosmetic changes in San Francisco. Like I say, we were frantically rewriting. We were. But as you know, there were so many things where Joe says, we can't change that. We need that time for the set change. Or we can't, you know, there were so many things you can't address. Or, you know, the poor actors, they're doing their best. They can't get a completely new play every night and... There were so many technical reasons, mostly about scenery and costumes, or even how much space there was backstage. So what you had to do is change what you could, but the show got fixed, so to speak, in that quiet, reflective time when it was closed in San Francisco. He and I immediately got together in Connecticut. I remember I probably lived there for a while. I think I lived in his house for a while. I've blocked a lot of this out, (laughs) but... um, We knew we were going to go into rehearsal, I think, in late August, something like that. And we had the summer. And we had stored up understandings of what we thought wasn't working. And let's face it, a big thing that wasn't working was time. The first act was just too long. It just took too long to get to the Emerald City. Because once you're in the Emerald City...
0: Things are cooking.
1: Things are cooking. And we know we've got our exciting end to the first act, which Joe made thrilling... And which Dina made thrilling. I mean, once you got there, you knew what you had. But you couldn't exhaust the audience so that they're going, well, yeah, that was cool, but oh, my God, I'm so tired. Mm. You know, because it took so long to get there. So we had to find cuts, but we also had to find ways to say the same thing but more efficiently and to have things be more elegant. You know, it's funny. I did this thing recently... We were on a panel somewhere together, he and I, for the Dramatist Guild, and I found an original outline Mm. I showed Stephen when we were sitting on the panel. And it's humorous to us because most of the bullet points never changed. In other words, the story story we wanted to tell, it was about telling it with more grace and quickness, a quickness that is fleet, that just carries you along.
0: Are you surprised that it was such a huge hit?
1: Well, we had some clues about emotions that people were feeling, because I can remember, uh, this is actually, I think this is before Joe even joined us, yeah, we had an early reading at Universal, like in a big, you know, one of their big sound stages, where we invited some friends, this was such an early version of the show, it was so long, I can't even talk about how long it was you know, a lot of the numbers weren't the same as they ended up being and blah, blah, blah. My book was a lot more weird and meandering. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, still at the end, people were in tears, not everyone, but a substantial group of people were crying. And, and I remember feeling this thrill go through me, you know, cause I knew how much work, was, I mean, nobody really knows how much work is ahead. Because if you knew, you would just kill yourself. <laughs> you, wouldn't really, you wouldn't really stick around. <laughs> it's like, I got to go. But I knew that it wasn't, it didn't work yet, quote unquote. And yet emotionally, it was. You knew you had something. I knew I had yeah. some, well, I didn't, we. I knew that we had tapped into something <laughs> that had a lot of power. And that never stopped being true. You could feel that. Uh, you could feel that in San Francisco when it was just way too long. But still, I <laughs> uh, just was with him last week, Stephen, and uh, we were laughing about something where uh, we've never forgotten this, where we had been arguing about about rewriting stuff with Joe, and we had been having a very difficult day, and we were, I think, in like the second preview, something like that. And Stephen went down to the front where the box office was. He was just walking and pacing. And he noticed there was this big crowd, like, around the box office. And he literally, so funny, he literally had the thought, I wonder... If a brick fell from the building and knocked someone unconscious because he couldn't understand why there'd be such a crowd gathered around the theater. And his first thought, we're both so Jewish, his first thought was that somebody had been injured. And, um, and then he found out that this was a line to get tickets. And, and, it, and it was extraordinary because it wasn't, like I say, the show didn't quite work in San Francisco. And there were so many things that we were so keenly aware didn't work Mm -hmm. uh, that we were fretting about. So to see the reaction that it was having, which was simply word of mouth.
0: Right. Because all you can see are the problems.
1: Oh, my God. It was just literally a medley of problems. (laughs) Exactly. But that's how I am with pretty much everything I'm involved with until... Those lovely little reprieve moments where you're able to look at something and go, oh, wow, I really love this. Uh But that's not the constant feeling or you wouldn't really be motivated to make it better and better.
0: A lot of mothers and daughters go to the show. What theme do you think causes this bond between mothers and daughters?
1: I think that it's just a true fact that uh, in our culture, there aren't allowed to be so many stories of girls being heroines, true heroines, and saving the day or, or stepping forth in a way that has, shows real courage, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I th- Wonder
0: Woman, the musical. Yeah,
1: well, that's one of the reasons <laughs> Wonder Woman, you know, is knocking people out right now, I think, mm-hmm. because people are, not just women, but women in a very special way are absolutely hungry to see that because they want to imbue that to their daughters. You know, let's face it, um, most women... I mean, I don't want to sound like an idiot because most people, you know, face a lot of obstacles and are brave in their lives. I mean, I think it's just a hard thing to be a human and to live up to, you know, your own life, to face up to your own challenges. But it's just hard when you over and over again don't see girls doing that. And I think we had this very special thing, which I didn't do it on purpose. It just happened. And as I was saying, a lot of it had to do with Kristen because we really wanted Kristen, like I say, and Kristen's part was so much smaller at one mm-hmm. time. And, you know, you have a Ferrari, and it's like going, well, I have a Ferrari, but I'm just going to keep it in the garage. Right.
0: Take it to the store. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to take yeah. it to the
1: store and back.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, you had to give her stuff, and you had to show her off. You let her shine.
0: It's very funny in it, too.
1: Well... Both of those women, Adina and Kristen, we were so thrilled with. And what we literally did, and I've said this before, is we literally tailored the parts to those women almost the way you would a costume. So that it fit them perfectly. But,
0: the perfect shade of green for Adina? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, but I mean, you wanted them to, we wanted them very much to shine. We wanted to show how unique both of them were. And we did that in every way. The way the way Stephen wrote music for them both was very much geared to their vocal instruments, their respective instruments. And with me, what they could pull off on stage, what what made them shine on stage, either comedically or whatever, that's what I was always looking for. But what's interesting to me is I can remember after it first was a hit, when we started to realize, oh, you know, it's really it's really a hit on Broadway. I can remember so many times him he and I looking at each other going, How are other women gonna play these parts? Because we had Mm -hmm. so tailored it to these women. It was a great lesson to me to see that when we had made it so specific in every way, these young incredible actresses could come in and make it their own too. Mm -hmm. And and it like so many different women all around the world have played those two parts and really brought, you know, their own humanity. And, and that's another aspect of why I think mothers and daughters have really embraced it. Although, you know, the, the funny thing about Wicked is, the funny secret about it is, uh, not, not a real secret, but, a, you know, a lot of people in the press, especially towards when we first were, were a hit, were sort of opining and making it sound like what, what was making us a hit were teenage girls, but you don't get that big an international hit if all the teenage girls mm-hmm. are seeing your show. What really made us a hit, if I can talk about, you know, not that I know really, but people wanted to come back and experience it again. I mean, I'm sure Wonder Woman is experiencing that now. I'm sure that there are people who saw Wonder Woman who are literally going, i got to see that again, because it's creating some kind of an emotion that they want to experience again.
0: How many times have you seen Wicked? This is my final question. Oh how many God. times, how many different productions, not just going to the same theater and seeing the same people, how many different productions do you think you've seen? And have you seen it in any foreign language? Oh,
1: yeah, many. But I haven't seen all the, the foreign languages. Like, you know, we did it in Korea, and uh-huh. I, I didn't go to Korea. I missed it. But the, the other languages I've seen it in is we, we had a beautiful production in Spanish in Mexico. We had a production in Japan in Japanese beautiful German production, and a one that was really unique was in Finland in Finnish, where it was the first time we first and only time to date that we ever granted people the right to not replicate joe 's production but to do their own production. Oh. The only one that 's ever been done yet. I mean, someday people will be doing that a lot. Yeah. But the only one that's ever been done so far was done in Finland. And we, Stephen and I went and and conferred with the director and went and saw it. It was fascinating just to see someone else interpret it. And also to hear it in Finnish. I mean, the big revelation for both of us was, if you didn't know what munchkins were, like the Japanese had no knowledge of the movie, no in, no knowledge of The Wizard of Oz as a book, as a mm. children's book. If you didn't know what munchkins were, if you didn't know what The Wizard of Oz was, or the Yellowbrook Road was, it doesn't seem to matter because you get caught up in the story of these two young women and their friendship and how they have to decide to stand up to, to, to speak truth to power, basically. It's really a story of two young women speaking truth to power. And um, the biggest thing has been that that's what's communicated itself through all these different cultures. So, turns out, you don't need to know the movie. <laughs>
0: well congratulations it's a, an amazing show and uh, i mean for five years you and i would be getting lunch and i'd say what are you doing and it's like oh we're gonna have <laughs> another reading and uh, i'm going back in the fall we have another workshop and it's like and when it finally came together it's like oh my god they're actually doing this right. so congratulations i think you did it pretty well
1: thank you <laughs>
0: And one final note, there will be a movie version of Wicked coming out in a couple of years. Winnie Holtzman just finished the first draft of the screenplay. Our thanks again to Winnie Holzman. Wasn't that a cool interview? Wow. Anyway, that's going to do it for this episode. In the weeks to come, my stand-up debut and the reading of the pilot that I co-wrote with David Isaacs. Any questions or comments, well, you can just email me anytime at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine. Thanks so much, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman and John Wolford, and to you for listening and making this podcast popular. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) AutoTrader.